Thank you for listening to our church podcast, where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m., for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. Luke chapter 14 is where we will be reading this morning, Luke 14, verses 25 through the end of the chapter. If you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. Luke 14, verses 25 through 35. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me, does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, well, the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored. It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Father, we pray that you would bless us as we seek to understand your word, give us clarity, help us to grasp what it is that you have for us in this text, and I pray that we would be changed and transformed by it. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We are once again uh, studying in the book of Luke, the life and ministry of Jesus. And today we're going to wrap up chapter 14 with these 11 uh, very difficult verses. Not difficult because they're hard to understand, but difficult because of what it is that Jesus is saying here. Before we start working our way through the text, I want to point out a phrase that is repeated uh, several times in these few verses that really shows us what the main theme here is. Verse 26, for example says that if anyone comes to me, does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And then verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then down in verse 33, everyone, uh, sorry, therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. So the question that Jesus is answering here clearly is, What does it take to be a disciple of Jesus? Which should lead us to the question, what does it mean to be a disciple? Uh, We often think of the 12 apostles when we hear that word disciple, but it's much broader than that. Uh, The word simply means a learner, a student, an apprentice. And so anyone who follows Jesus' teaching would be considered his disciple. And it's synonymous with our word Christian. Luke writes in the book of Acts, A whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And so Christian and disciple are synonymous terms in Scripture. To be a disciple of Jesus simply means to be a Christian. And so back in our text in Luke, we're going to find out what is required of somebody 
who wants to become a Christian? What does it cost to become a follower or a disciple of Jesus? We begin in verse 25 where Luke says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, Jesus was always surrounded uh, by great crowds of people. He was someone that drew quite a bit of attention. Some people follow Jesus because of his miracles. I mean, can you imagine being able to see somebody, you, you hear someone's in town that can uh, cure all sorts of diseases and ailments. Uh, that would be something that you'd want to go see. People also came uh, to listen to him teach. Jesus was certainly the most profound teacher to ever live, and even today, uh, many people outside of Christianity recognize the wisdom of Jesus. And so people would crowd around Jesus to listen to him teach, to see him perform miracles. Uh, we know in John 6 that some people followed Jesus after the feeding of the 5,000 because they wanted more bread. Uh, they, they wanted to have the benefits of his miracle-working power. And so among these great crowds of people, you had some who were following Jesus for all sorts of different reasons. And it would seem that Jesus was very successful at this point in his ministry. He was popular. Uh, people were flocking to him. This is what every teacher would want, uh, but not Jesus. Jesus was not interested in numbers. He didn't just want a large following. He wanted fully devoted disciples, those who would follow him no matter the cost. And Jesus even went as far as to discourage people from following him. You may remember back in chapter 9, we're told, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You see in these verses that Jesus seems to be intentionally discouraging people who want to be his disciples. They would express interest in following him, and he would give them reasons not to. Uh, this is very different than the way that we do evangelism today. Most of us would want to get as many people into our churches as possible. Uh, we just want a large crowd of people, but not Jesus. He was not interested in having a large group of people who were all over the scale in their levels of commitment to him. And so he would rather those who were not all in just leave. And perhaps the most drastic example of this kind of uh, call to full allegiance is what we have in our text, beginning in verse 26, where Jesus says to these crowds of people following him, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife, and children, and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Now, the first thing to point out here is the word hate. This is not uh, quite the way that we think of hatred today. Uh, in Semitic terms, hating in this context would be a comparative term, to say that one thing is being preferred above another. Like in Romans 9, when God says, uh, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. It doesn't mean that he literally despised Esau or had some emotional hatred for him means that Israel was chosen. Uh, his descendants were chosen specially to be the people of God. So it's a preference of one over the other. You may remember Jesus' words that nobody can serve two masters uh, because he'll end up hating one and loving the other, which means you'll prefer one to the other. And so this is a comparison here. Our love for Jesus is to be so strong that no other relationship on earth even comes close by comparison. 
Uh, maybe a, a clearer way to understand this is the way that he words it in Matthew 10, Jesus speaking again. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, which is just like saying he can't be my disciple. Uh, you've got to love me more than all of those earthly relationships. And so Jesus is to be number one. He is to be the most important relationship in our lives. And no one should be loved more. No one should be more committed to than our commitment to Christ. Now, this reality affected Jewish believers in Jesus back then differently than it does us today in America. Uh, in that day, to follow Jesus often meant turning your back on your family. Even today, in some uh, heavily Jewish and Muslim cultures, if you become a Christian, you're essentially um, alienated from the family. In some of those cultures, in fact, they'll have a, a mock funeral for you, basically saying you're, you're dead to us now. You're no longer a part of our family. And so for these people to commit to follow Jesus would mean they would be ostracized from society in many cases, and they would be no longer welcome even in their closest circles. And so Jesus is simply saying, if you want to be my disciple, that may require letting go of other relationships. Nothing can come before Christ in our life. He is to be the most important person to each of us. He isn't interested in being just part of your life. He wants to be the top priority, the most important relationship that you have. And an amazing thing happens when you do this. When you put Jesus first in your life, that ends up, as a result, helping all of those other relationships. And so even though he says this strong language, you know, hate those others in comparison to your love for me, uh, it's not true that this will result in you literally uh, being a terrible son or father or husband, no. In fact, if you are following Christ and you're following his commands in Scripture, that will make you better in all of those other relationships. For example, if you're a son or a daughter, following Jesus involves what the Bible says about honoring your parents. If you're a parent, following Jesus means obeying what the Bible says about how to raise your kids properly. If you're a husband, following Jesus means obeying everything the Bible tells you to do in, in loving and caring for your wife. And so by putting Jesus first, this actually has the effect of making you the best husband and wife and father and mother and son and daughter that you can be. So that's the first requirement for discipleship. We must put Jesus first above everyone else. But then it gets harder. At the end of verse 26, Jesus says we must also love him more than our own life. And then into verse 27, uh, he gives this sobering image. He says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Bearing the cross means you're willing to die for him. Talk about a high level of commitment. He says, you cannot be my disciple unless you are willing to take up your cross and follow me, uh, laying everything that you are at the feet of Jesus. This is what it means to follow Jesus. It's, it's the end of my personal dreams and plans and aspirations. When you're headed up that hill carrying your cross, when you're headed for your execution, uh, guess what you're not thinking about? What you're going to do tomorrow? <laughs> That's not a part of the equation because you're about to die. Your life is over at that point. For you, there is no tomorrow. And in the same way, becoming a Christian means laying aside your dreams, laying aside your aspirations in life and committing yourself to do his will instead of your own. We are to live every day with the understanding that Jesus could direct us somewhere else and we are to obey. This is what Paul meant when he said in Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the, uh, in the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself for me. Paul is saying here, when I became a Christian, I gave myself to Jesus. I died to myself, and now I'm just I'm doing his will, not my own. That's what it means to bear your cross and to follow Christ. Verse 28 of our text, Jesus continues, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Now, this is pretty simple. If you're going to build a tower, uh, you need to sit down and count the cost. Make sure you have enough funds to finish the project. Otherwise, you'll have half the building built, you'll run out of money, and then uh, everyone will make fun of your lack of foresight. So count the cost before you start. The next illustration is uh, very similar, really proving the very same point. Verse 31, Jesus says, What king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Again, very straightforward. Uh, before you engage in battle, make sure you're going to win, <laughs> or at least you have a good chance. Uh, you don't want to go against another army without sitting down, counting the cost, and seeing if this is really a good idea. And so the point here in both of these illustrations is simply count the cost of following Christ. Uh, don't make an emotional decision uh, just because you heard something Jesus said and it sounded really good. And you say, okay, I'm going to go follow Jesus. He says, no, no. Uh, really consider what you're doing here, because there are there is a cost to following Christ, and we see that in verse 33. So therefore, here's the conclusion of those two illustrations. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Notice how absolutely all-inclusive these words are. Any of you. This applies to anyone who would want to be a disciple of Christ. You must renounce all that you have. Jesus must be the top priority in your life if you want to be a Christian. Uh, Jesus said, for instance, in Luke 16, 13, No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Notice again, the hate-love language there is uh, comparative. And it's explaining by that word devoted. Uh, you can't serve God in money. One of those priorities is going to have your devotion. If you're devoted to making money, and that's your, your drive in life, uh, you're not going to be serving God. One of those, only, in other words, there's only room on the throne of your heart for one of those priorities. Because when two priorities collide, you have to make that choice as to which is most important. I was thinking of how best to illustrate this. My time went back to uh, when I was in college. Uh, I lived on the campus in the dorms there, so I got to know a lot of the guys there uh, very well over those years. And uh, over, over time, it, it doesn't take too long to find out what the top priorities are of, of people. Uh, some guys in college, were they, they prioritized making money. That was their thing. These were the ones that worked incessantly. Uh, they always were picking up extra hours even when they didn't need to. Uh, these were also the guys who slept through class. Uh, they were also the guys who at times fell asleep at the wheel and wrecked their cars. Uh, they were just driven by the desire to make money. Then you had the sports guys. And uh, I knew that these guys real well because I worked in the athletics department of the college. And so these were the guys that every spare moment they were in the gym. Uh, they were shooting a basketball. They were practicing with their teammates. I mean, all the time they were down in the gym. And again, these guys didn't tend to do so great with grades. A lot of times they didn't really have any sort of relationships. They left single from college while a lot of other guys got married. 
uh, because this was just their priority. And this leads to the third category. You had the guys who prioritized grades. And these were the ones who didn't spend a lot of time socializing. Everybody else was playing volleyball or something. They were in their dorm room working on Greek homework, and this was me, incidentally, in college. Uh, these were the guys who stayed up all night writing essays because it was due the next day while everybody else would just say, I'll turn it in late and take the, you know, the five-point deduction, whatever. Uh, my point in all of that is to say, whatever you place as your top priorities, those will necessarily displace other things. There will be times when, because of your commitment to that one thing that you think is most important, you'll have to say no to other things. And Jesus is saying in these verses, above every human relationship, above everything that you have, Jesus is to be first in your life. The illustrations are clear. The application is simple. Jesus is inviting those who would be his followers to really consider what it is that they're committing to. Don't just think, I can add Jesus to the rest of my life. He is either Lord of all or he's not at all. Whatever it is that keeps you from following Christ wholeheartedly, that has too much importance in your life, even if it's a good thing. And so Jesus comes and says, if you want to follow me, then your life is about to change. Your priorities to this point have been your own life, uh, comfort, security, happiness, your family. Now he is your top priority. This doesn't necessarily mean that God's going to take away all of those other things, but he wants you to lay them down at his feet and let him decide. Uh, this is so contrary to the way Christianity is advertised in America today. I mean, you turn on the television to the, some of these Christian preachers, and uh, basically they're just urging you to give Jesus a try. Uh, prosperity preachers will claim that if you follow Jesus, everything in your life is going to get better. You'll have great health, your, your wealth will increase, you'll be happier, more prosperous. That is not how Jesus advertised himself. He invited people to come and lay their lives down. He said, don't even start to follow me unless you're willing to suffer loss. Uh, there's, no, there's no fine print with Jesus. He gives you the costs right up front. He says, if you want to follow me, count the cost. Be prepared to give up everything, all your possessions, all your relationships, your dreams, your aspirations, possibly even your own life. And so God must have first place in the life of a true disciple. He is the priority over every relationship. A commitment to following Christ means laying your life and all that you have at his feet, saying, I'm yours. Use me however you will. Many people want the benefits of Christianity without it costing them anything. We want to keep all of our stuff and continue in our sin, and we just want to add Jesus into the mix for whatever perceived benefits he seems to offer. But he makes it very simple here. You, you cannot do that. You notice three times in those verses. If you don't do this, you cannot be my disciple. If you don't yield everything you have and everything you are to Christ, you simply cannot be a Christian. Now, who would do this? I mean, after hearing the high costs of discipleship, who would continue to follow Jesus? I wonder in the crowd that day when they heard these hard words, uh, how many of them may have said, you know what, I think I'm going to go back to my home. I don't think I'm going to keep following this man if, if this is the cost. Maybe a better question is, why would you? If that's the cost, what is the benefit? What are you gaining by giving up all of that? Again, I remind you of what Jesus said in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has <clears throat> and buys that field. Notice those three words, in his joy. He sells all that he has to, to purchase that field, and he does so joyfully. <clears throat> Why? 
how can you give up everything you have and be happy about it? And there's really only one reasonable answer, unless you're just completely insane. Uh, why would you sell everything you have to buy a field? Well, because in his estimation, the treasure that he was getting in the field was more valuable than the sum of everything he gave up to get the field, right? That would be the only reason that someone would make this conclusion and say, joyfully, I'm going to sell everything I have to buy this field. The only way that you would do that is if you considered that treasure more valuable than everything that you own. And it's not just slightly better. This would have to be worth far more than everything that this man had in order to compel him to give up everything to gain this field. Now, <clears throat> how is that like the kingdom? Because again, Jesus says, this is like my kingdom. Let's put this together with what we've seen in Luke. The only logical reason that someone would give up everything and place Jesus as number one in their life is if they believed that what they were gaining was worth far more <clears throat> than what it was costing them. And the cost is very high, as we've seen. It costs you everything. Uh, Jesus said, you have to renounce all that you have. Take up your cross, follow Jesus. You have to lose your life in order to find it. But what you gain is worth far more than what it costs you. What you gain is an eternal relationship with God through Jesus. We were created to be in fellowship with God. That was our purpose for our existence. And that's impossible in our sinful state. But God has made it possible through Christ to have that relationship with him restored. And ultimately, that's why we exist. Our careers, our education, our experiences in life are temporary. And often they become distractions from what is most important. Our only relationship with God is the only thing that really lasts after this short life is over. This is why Paul wrote in Philippians 3, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. You see in Paul's words there, uh, he had done this calculation. He had considered what it would cost him to follow Christ. And he said, all of those things that I would have to give up to follow Jesus, that's trash to me compared to the overwhelmingly surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. Nothing on this earth is so valuable that it's worth holding on to and missing out on Christ. So yes, discipleship has the highest cost, but it also gives the greatest benefit. In Luke chapter 18, Peter uh, was apparently trying to impress Jesus with how much he had sacrificed to become a disciple. He says, See, we have left our homes and followed you. Jesus responds to him in verse 29, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. You're not giving up anything of eternal significance. Those temporary sacrifices will be far surpassed by the reward that you gain. I'm reminded here of the story of uh, C.T. Studd. He was a cricket player in England in the 1800s. By 1882, he was considered one of the best cricket players in the world. A couple of years later, he gave it all up to become a missionary to China. He left his career, gave away all of his money to the work of Christ, and he spent the rest of his life spreading the gospel of Jesus to a country that was almost completely lost. Now, his friends and family, as you might imagine, thought he was crazy to abandon all of that, to leave this, you know, his wealth, his fame of being this famous athlete. 
but in reality, did he really give up that much? It's been nearly 100 years since he died. How do you think he's feeling now about the decision to give up cricket and instead go spread the gospel to China? You think he's saying to himself, man, I really wish I would have played a little cricket a few years longer. I could have made a lot more money. It's silly to even think that way, and yet that's how so many of us think. We get so distracted by temporary things, we lose sight of what really matters. It was Jim Elliott who said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Yes, becoming a Christian is costly, and yet, in another sense, it's a bargain. Yes, we're called to give up everything, but what we gain in return is so much more than anything we've given up. We gain forgiveness of all of our sins. We gain a relationship with our Creator. We gain the comforting presence of the Holy Spirit. We gain the promises of Scripture that God gives to His children. We get a new start at life, regardless of any past mistakes or future shortcomings. We get new grace every morning. We get the meaning and significance that comes from a life of service to Christ. We get freedom from the waste that our lives would otherwise be. We get eternal life with God, and we get the future blessings and rewards of God's kingdom. And so in reality, we're, we're giving up dirt for diamonds. Now, what about those last two verses? We'll go over these just quickly. Verse 34, salt is good. Well, that seems like a strange uh, direction to turn from this discussion of discipleship. Uh, salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, I don't know about you. The first time I read that, I thought, what in the world am I going to say about that? Uh, one thing I do on Mondays, typically, when I first start studying a text, is I just write out uh, basically my initial thoughts just to kind of get them on paper. And when I read those two verses, I wrote in my notes, huh? Because <laughs> I just had no idea what in the world this was talking about. Uh, I read some Bible commentators that were putting up all sorts of different theories about uh, how salt can lose its saltiness in the ancient world. It was mixed with gypsum, and so there's some sort of chemical reaction that took place. Uh, I don't know about any of that, but I, I think the main point here that Jesus is making is simply this. Salt has to last to be worth anything. Uh, they, they used salt in the ancient world primarily as a preservative. We think of salt you know, as basically to season our food. Uh, they didn't have refrigeration. This was the way they preserved food. And so it was very important to them to have salt. Uh, salt was very, it was very valuable in the ancient world. Uh, there's even some phrases, one of them's not coming to mind now. Uh, worth is weight in salt, is that one of them? Uh, there's certain phrases that you can see that come from how valuable they considered salt to be. But salt would not be worth anything if it has lost its saltiness. That's the one good thing about salt, it's always salty. That's why it can preserve other things because it never diminishes itself. And so the point here is on endurance. And if we want to find out what, what does the salt symbolize here, what is Jesus talking about? Uh, Matthew 5, I think he explains it. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So this is essentially the same teaching. But here Jesus clarifies that we are the salt of the earth. So he's talking about disciples of Christ. We are the salt. And if the salt loses its saltiness, it is useless. And here's what I think the point is. Jesus is not looking for disciples who will follow him for a little while. He wants those who will last. Throughout this text, he's been urging us to commit to following him, 
to pledge our highest allegiance to Christ, to renounce everything else. And this is to be a lifelong commitment. If you, if you start out following Christ and then somewhere along the way you lose your drive, you cannot be his disciple. And so again, he is reminding us to count the cost. Last sentence there is one that Jesus used often when he made important uh, statements that were worthy of uh, basically reflection. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is a warning. As if the words of this text were not sobering enough, he kind of adds that tag on the end to say, take this very seriously before you continue following me. Can you imagine being in the crowd that day? You're following Jesus along with everybody else, and he turns to all of you and says, you cannot follow me unless you're willing to give up everything and commit your life to me above every other priority. Jesus is drawing the line in the sand here, and he says to all of the half-hearted followers in the crowd, don't take one more step unless they mean to follow him until death. Great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil well, for the manure pile, it is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.